First of all, uh, welcome to the conversation uh, in Chris Dorr. Um, you have uh, done a, a huge number of things. You're on the BBC uh, TV series, Crime, Are We Tough Enough? Um, you wrote uh, the uh, excellent book. Um, now I've uh, listened to all of it, um, but Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. Um, so first of all, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much. I'm very um, impressed that you managed to listen to me for seven hours. <laughs> it was very interesting. I'd say, actually, I, I normally I'm really bad at listening or reading books. So you actually it got me through an entire book. So I'm, I'm glad. Well, your book somewhere in the post because you will actually get a real one. But uh, <laughs> you would never need to read it. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, can, it can sit there on the bookshelf. That's <laughs> pristine. Um, so really, the first question I wanted to ask you and, and it just came from actually one of the, the pieces I was listening to um, really just before we came on but you, you talked about um, HMC Whitmore and um, the prison there um, and sort of the, the secure unit and, and everything else and I sort of wondered because the biggest difference I think people tend to see between Norwegian prisons and the ones in the UK is just the atmosphere of prisons and you know how they look and of course you, you talk in the book about you know how they don't even allow sort of a grade of uh, a sort of blade of grass or anything like that in the prisons you know you've got birds getting trapped so what would you say the biggest differences are between those two sort of um styles of prisons i think the the, the, the most important difference between the norwegian model and the british model is that the norwegian model is rightly focused on making the prison environment as close to the outside world as possible. So to, to have people live in ordinary housing units, make their own food, potentially have family come to stay occasionally, that kind of thing. So levels of normality and the normal experience of everyday life so that when uh, prisoners emerge from the Norwegian system, that emergence isn't particularly extreme. And so they're not challenged in the same way that prisoners are in Britain. And the reason for that challenge is because of the opposite end of the spectrum I've described, because we make our prisons as, as extraordinarily abnormal as possible. So we, we, we keep the living conditions in, or in many cases, in Victorian prisons of the kind that have been in movies for, for decades and decades. That's in a completely alien environment that most people have only ever witnessed on television on, in, in the form of drama. So, so that's the main, for me, the main difference is the, the sort of othering of those in the criminal justice system that we do in Britain. So, so they're a different sort of form of life and they don't belong as part of our world and our society. And the Norwegian model is they're just us, but they've made mistakes. And with the right inputs and the right kind of support systems, they will come back to being part of society and going on with their lives. And so that kind of positive mentality around, uh, you know, uh, uh, just not that binary analysis, which I suppose is the worst of it all, which is, you know, you're either a good person or a bad person. If you're a bad person, you may as well be in prison forever and we do nothing with you. And I think that's the, that's the antithesis of the approach in Norway. So cause one thing I find interesting, of course, is in Norway, they, they used to it. Um, I, I say recently, so within the last decade, they, they removed their sort of 21 year maximum sentence sort of thing. But, um, uh, you know, I, I sort of remember listening to um, interviews with Norwegian prison guards where they'd say, you know, I have to look after this person because they will be outside. Um, you know, they will be outside of the prison. They may be my neighbour. Um, so, 
you know, in, in the UK, we've kind of gone for a completely different approach of longer prison sentences. Um, so again, you know, what do you think the impact, of course, in the UK of having these huge long prison sentences is? And, you know, what's the impact in Norway where they have much shorter sentences, often, um, you know, below the 21 year mark, even for very serious crimes? Yeah, well, I think the main difference is that the that we in Britain, um, are, we, we our sentencing process isn't really focused on the overall picture. So for most people, I suspect if you drill down to it, what do you want from your criminal justice system? What you want to do is reduce crime um, and reduce costs. So you, so you want fewer people to be the victims of crime in the future and you want the whole thing to cost as little as it needs to cost. Now, prisons achieve the exact opposite of that because what they do at great cost is increase the overall number of crimes because they act as breeding grounds for criminal behavior, criminal association, um, and, and you know, alienating people from ordinary law-abiding lives because the world that they, that they go into in prison is so alien and different. So, so that, that whole mindset around you know, the alienation of those who commit crimes and the need to keep them separate is what in the end drives crime because you alienate a very significant and escalating number of people. The more people you put in prison, the more you alienate, the more crime you get. And, and that's just, um, that's the case, you know, when you look across the Atlantic at the US model, where there's almost two and a half million people in prison, as opposed to our mere 80 to 85,000 at the moment in Britain, um, two and a half million people in prison uh, in a society which is supposed to be a free country, which is supposed to be a safe and good place to live, and they have to lock up two and a half million, that's almost one in a hundred uh, at any one time. Um, we're, we're nowhere near that, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that where the Norwegian model is to imprison as few people as possible, the US model is as many people for as long as possible, we're kind of on the trajectory going towards the US, rather than going towards the, the Norwegian model, the big difference between Norway and the US, massively higher levels of crime in the US versus Norway. So if we go the US way, my fear is we end up, I'm afraid, somewhere on that spectrum towards mass incarceration on a scale that's almost unimaginable. So I think that the one thing, you know, we, we obviously push is sort of Re, you know, reducing reoffending rates and, and stopping people from going into to crime or, or, you know, at least ensuring that if they do commit something low level, that they stay out of crime. So in terms of sort of, you know, things like education within prisons, you know, ensuring that people can get into work after prisons, what would you say are sort of the main lessons that, um, you know, you would have for sort of improving the prison system so that people don't end up stuck in that vicious cycle of continuously, you know, reoffending, leaving, not finding that there's sort of work for them or that not able to sort of contribute to society in that way, and then ending up back in prison again? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the illustration I gave earlier of the, of the Norwegian approach of, of making it, you know, normalizing the prison environment. So trying to I suppose you could look at it like an airlock. You know, if you have if you have the pressure between the prison environment and the outside world, so completely different, that emerging from one to the other is just an enormous shock to the system. That's exactly what kind of in the end hits people in, in when they come out of prison in England. They, many of them, I mean, you can see it's quite bright and sunny here where I am today, but but many of them literally come blinking into the sunlight from a life of almost grey darkness in very dingy prison environments with almost no time outdoors and suddenly they're out in the world 
and they just have no, you know, they've come from, it's like they've been in the deepest, darkest ocean and suddenly they're popped up onto a Caribbean beach. And what do you do? I mean, you have no kind of tools to deal with the environment you're in. Um, so the Norwegian system is the diametric opposite, which is from the minute you go into prison, the entire focus is preparing you for a, for a seamless transition from custody to everyday life. And that means when you leave prison, you will have a job already. You've probably already been working in that job for six months to a year on day release or weekends or whatever it might be. And you just gradually ease somebody into a life when you've, you may have had two nights away from prison, uh, staying in your family home. Let's see how that works out. And yeah, that's working well. So we're gonna call it three nights, four nights. And before too long, you just taper off the custodial controls and you ease into a pattern of life, which is pretty much the same as it was the day before. Our system, you go from, you could be in a category B prison, you know, in a secure prison environment, or even a category A prison in some cases, and you get released from to the most extraordinary uh, levels of day-to-day, minute-by-minute control into a situation where expected to go out and fend completely for yourself with no transitional plan, with no continuity, no nothing. And, you know, it really doesn't take a, a, a genius to work out that, you know, making things as different as you can in prison is going to make it more difficult for people to come out and, and act in a lawful and normal way. And, and then you end up, I'm afraid, if that doesn't happen, with the precise vicious cycle that you described. Um, so one of the biggest challenges of getting to this kind of justice system is, of course, convincing the public. Um, I think crime, you know, are we tough enough was a, a very interesting example of, you know, it's it will be um, easy to show people examples of where it works, how it works and all of the rest of it. But yet, you know, the public now we're still going down that route of saying, oh, you know, should we bring that back the death penalty? Not should we go towards the Nordic sort of model of of rehabilitation? So. Given that, you know, we are on that trajectory, it feels like towards a sort of US style uh, justice system, which is aimed on sort of locking up as many people as possible without really getting results out of it. You know, it doesn't really sort of reduce or stop crime from happening. How, how do we sort of start to shift the public towards the view that maybe trying something different, even if it feels maybe against their best instincts, that, you know, punishment will lead to lower crime rates? How do we sort of make that shift in public opinion? Well, I think the only thing that shifts public opinion is a shift of perception. So at the moment, the perception that people have of the criminal justice system in Britain is largely that it's soft and that sentencing is very lenient and that people are getting out of way with murder on a day-to-day basis or being released by soft judges, etc. Now, that, that kind of belief is extraordinarily prevalent in, in, in the sort of general public consciousness. And because it's prevalent in the general public consciousness, there's a certain category of media outlet, um, you know, populist radio and television kind of um, programs, where it's essentially just recycling that same basic sentiment back again, gets more viewers, but then spreads the spreads the, 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 that kind of toxic message more widely. Um, and so it kind of um, perpetrates. So. I think the only the only answer to that real real phenomenon, which is almost unavoidable in some senses, is to just try to tell people the truth, as I do. If I go onto GB News or 
you know, any of the other kind of outlets, which are, you know, predominantly completely misguided and, and ignorant in the way that they cover uh, justice issues, I just simply say, you, you're wrong. You know, when I became a barrister in the mid-1990s, almost 30 years ago, we had about 40,000 people in prison. Now we have almost 90,000 in prison. And when I started out in practice, the average length of time you spend in prison for a serious crime, such as rape or murder or a serious assault, is, was half what it is now. So for murder, on average, you would serve 12 years in the mid-90s. Now it's almost 25 years. So it's almost doubled the amount of time that you spend in prison for the same thing. So the, the argument that the reason for we have all these terrible problems is because the system is soft. It just doesn't add up because the system is tougher in in the terms of sentencing at least and the number of people locked up and the longer for the longest period of time than it's ever been so you know and, and my, all i say to people is okay I, I if you really do want people to go to prison for a very very long time for things that's your prerogative but don't pretend that's because somehow Every, everyone's getting less and less time in prison and something needs to be put right because the truth is the things you're arguing for governments have accepted for the last 20 years and that's why we have double the prison population and double the length of sentence um so you just have to keep just hammering home the truth is is my basic kind of theory i suppose um so, so another thing that's sort of uh fascinated me actually in the book is the, the distinction between sort of good and evil and you know and I, I think again you know looking um primarily at the Nordic system there doesn't seem to be as much I mean there, there is still a bit but it doesn't seem to be as much of this very clear-cut sort of distinction between the sort of two sides um so again how, how do we get away from that and, and making those quite easy distinctions between you know that person has done something wrong and therefore obviously they are a completely bad person that can never be changed or looking at someone else and saying well obviously they've never done anything wrong they never could and, and aren't capable of it so yeah how do we sort of get away from that I, again i think you can, this the answer is the same which is you just have to kind of communicate reality you know and, and my reality of as I say, almost 30 years of criminal law and, you know, dealing with people who have been accused of and have committed every crime you could possibly imagine from murder to serious fraud to armed robbery to drug trafficking, you know, all of those people, I suppose, who most would put on the, the bad side, the evil side of the line, um, and many who have been accused of those things, who it turned out were completely innocent and some would put on the other side of the line. Um, but I think for me, the, the, the real kind of thinking point is well, what about the people in the middle what about the people that that they may not have done quite as bad a thing as is suggested but they did do something but in their favor they also did this good thing and and i suppose once you kind of understand that there are that everybody is capable of both good and bad and mixed good and bad behavior for mixed good and bad motives once you kind of understand that everyone it's an incredibly complex mix then I think you know you're 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 in a good place to say it doesn't help us very much to treat it as if it's a binary mix, and it's us and these bad people and these bad people need to go away forever, even if there are only ten. You know we still have ten-year-old children being um, being 
prosecuted for crimes in England. You know, even if they're 10, they're, they're bad. They did a terrible thing and a terrible crime. I just think there is a, um, you know, there's a rethinking to be done. <coughs> um, so another area of your books that you focused on was, was drugs. And you gave a, a fantastic sort of explanation about the history um, and, you know, how we effectively, I'd say, lost our connection um, with what drugs were, what they were meant for. Um, so, you know, would you be able to sort of explain a bit about, you know, how we lost that connection with drugs, but also where you think we should go in terms of, of legislation from here on in yeah. terms of dealing with drugs? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is actually probably a subject that I'm the most passionate about for the simple reason that I think it's the, it's the most idiotic uh, policy that we that we have had in the last sort of century in terms of criminal justice policy um, and it's so easy to reverse and therefore to make massive and beneficial changes um, but but you know to summarize what I talk about in the book and there's a chapter in the book called um, why we should legalize all drugs um, and, and you know the, the reason that I kind of took that extreme approach was um, I went back and looked in some detail uh, at the history of the use of psychotropic and other mood altering substances by human beings since time began since you know um you know before we were kind of even modern humans um and the research is very interesting because what it shows is that there is significant evidence that psychotropic plants and psychotropic um, substances that occur in nature actually co-evolved with human beings so that they were interdependent and, and that, that's a, a fascinating kind of analysis when you think about it because what, what that means is and those, those of your kind of viewers stroke listeners who, who know anything about sort of Darwinism and, 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 and human evolution will understand that the way that evolution works is by usually by chance because one individual happens to have one characteristic that's particularly advantageous at a particular moment and then suddenly the whole gene pool shifts in favor of that individual because of that one advantage or that one uh, fluke kind of uh, characteristic that they may have well what what science says is in fact that drugs psychotropic drugs in particular have achieved much more quickly and more effectively the same impact of some of those sort of shock to the system uh, kind of moments which have taken many generations to turn into some sort of meaningful change so what's happened is that that at some point in evolution or very many points in evolution we have in some individual or group of individuals have taken a particular psychotropic substance it's had a particular impact on their brain which has meant that they have imagined or decided that there is a particularly clever way to do something which they wouldn't have thought of had they not had the psychotropic drug in the first place and so suddenly you know you could for example have why don't we make a round thing that we put on a stick and it's called a wheel and that could i mean in the way that you know art great artists and great musicians over the the last few centuries have found the most extraordinary inspiration from periods of intoxication so our ancestors it may appear had also achieved great scientific advances and great technological advances which ultimately have led to us being where we are so if you want to reverse all of that what i'm saying is without drugs it may be we'd still be walking on four legs i think it's, it's an interesting answer and, and honestly yeah it's it's kind of scary to think so do you think that in some ways we've been um 
held back then by not by this sort of process of of criminalizing and sort of the the sort of quote war on drugs that sort of been yeah. going on and everything would you say that and, and in terms as well of sort of the the, the human cost of it you know in, in terms of, of drug trafficking and that kind of thing is it sort of how much do you think that sort of held us back well, it's not just held us back it's killed hundreds of thousands of people in, in britain alone uh, i mean i mean what what people may, may not appreciate is that uh, and I'll give you probably the statistic that struck me the most as I was researching and writing the book was a statistic about um, long-term problem heroin users in Britain. Um, and in the late 1960s, we had about a thousand long-term problem heroin users. Um, and they weren't really that problematic because they got their heroin from their doctor who was allowed to prescribe heroin to someone who was addicted to heroin. So they would get pharmaceutical grade heroin uh, from the doctor at relatively modest cost and they could go about their day and, and, and live their lives in a, in a very kind of ordinary way. About a thousand. No crime related to heroin, no serious illness related to heroin and almost no overdoses related to heroin uh, at all. So that's a late 1960s, 1969, 1970. That's the position in, in the UK. What then happens is that Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, decides to declare a war on drugs. Richard Nixon, uh, we all know, of course, having turned out to have been a complete crook who had to resign from office. But Richard Nixon, by this stage, was looking at a second term uh, as president of the United States. And he decided that the way to get that second term was to go big on drugs. So he declared a war on drugs. He insisted that all of the US uh, allies and indeed almost everybody in the world had to sign up to a convention to criminalize drugs like heroin and cocaine and, uh, and cannabis for that matter. And, and, and as a result of that, the United States passed the most uh, serious and draconian drugs legislation uh, in, in the early 1970s uh, and in almost around the same time or a few months later, we passed the Misuse of Drugs Act in the United Kingdom uh, 50 years ago. And that effectively meant that all that small group of 1000 people who had been getting their heroin from their doctor and all the rest of it, all of that stops. Heroin was a prohibited drug under the convention and under the Misuse of Drugs Act. You go anywhere near it, you can be prosecuted, you go to jail. So what happened next is that that group of a thousand wanted their heroin. They, weren't, they were heroin addicts. They'd been heroin addicts for years. They wanted their heroin. What did they do? They looked for drug suppliers, organized crime suppliers, low level dealers who could get some heroin. There's a huge demand just from that thousand people because a thousand heroin users use a lot of heroin uh, in, 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 in a week because heroin you know, is a high dependency sub substance. So, all what they do is reach out drug players suddenly there's this new market we've been selling cannabis mostly and cocaine a bit but now suddenly heroin is the is is the thing to we need to get into and so they get into heroin and within 10 years of the misuse of drugs that coming into force by the early 1980s we'd gone from a thousand heroin users receiving safe pharmaceutical heroin from their doctor to three hundred thousand heroin addicts all buying their drugs from street dealers in just 10 years because of one piece of legislation and when you think about the scale of the criminality that lies behind 300,000 heroin addicts the layers of drug supply 
the, the amount of crime that has to be committed by those 300,000 people to raise 200 pounds a day for their heroin habit on the black market, it, it, it's just, you can't imagine a more stupid thing to do. And sadly, the impact is not just stupidity. It's not just money here and there. It's human life in massive numbers uh, of heroin overdoses because of no access to safe pharmaceutical heroin, because of criminality around and being beaten or killed because of being involved in drug dealing because of a heroin habit. Uh, you know, the state through its observance and its adherence to Richard Nixon's wishes in the early 1970s has, I'm afraid, been become a mass murderer. And there's no, no, no end in sight. So in terms of where we go from there with drugs sort of policy wise, I mean, it, it, you almost hinted at it in the, the answer before your last one of, of sort of getting rid of um, Misuse of Drugs Act and that. So where would you like to go policy wise? Would it be, you know, full legalization of all drugs? Would it be something more similar to Portugal's model uh, sort of decriminalization? Um, whereabouts on that sort of scale would you would you go? Would you uh, there's also the option, of course, of going down the scale and decriminalizing and then legalizing. So where, whereabouts would you say you sort of fit on that? Well, you see, Torin, I know that's a rhetorical question because you read the book, so you will know that the answer is that, I, that, that, that I'm very much on the side of complete licensing, regulation and legalisation. All three of those things are essential. So take an example. We have, we, you, have a, no, you have no licensed or legal supply of drugs in Portugal. Mm. Drugs are, however, decriminalised. The problem with that model is that all of the supply chain remains in the hands of organized criminals and they are violent and they are dangerous and they push the price of drugs as high as possible. So that's a model which has some marginal benefits to use end users who are not going to be prosecuted for being in possession of small quantities of drugs. But in terms of changing the overall dynamic, it doesn't achieve that at all. So that's one kind of model that does, that's better than what we have, but doesn't really work. In the US, when they've done legalization in various states in terms of cannabis, California and Nevada, for example, very large states with large markets for, for the drug, um, what they've done there is that they have, they have effectively licensed and to an extent regulated, um, but what they have pretty much done is allowed the, the, well, they've allowed the entire supply chain to become a commercial private business. And that, you know, in its own right, drives up prices, drives competition over trying to supply as much as possible because private businesses are running, you know, running the show and are supplying all the cannabis. So there is no model at the moment that has a fully licensed, legalized and regulated supply chain. And what, what I would have is dispensaries. They could be contracted out to the private sector or they could could be run directly by the state. Uh, probably the former would make more sense given the state's catastrophic record of running most things. But, but, but a nationwide series of dispensaries where you could obtain cocaine, ecstasy, cannabis, heroin, any of the other drugs that are currently prohibited in packaging, which was brand neutral, had no branding, just told you what you were getting, MDMA, this much, how many milligrams, all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, provided you were over the age of 18, you could go there and within reason, not necessarily in large quantities, but you could get pretty much anything you wanted. Um, that would be the model for me that would get rid of all of the um, current 
problems caused by prohibition, which are organized crime activity around the supply of drugs, unsafe drugs, because there's no one checking what's in each tablet or which, what's in each uh, vial of heroin. Um, and, uh, you know, so you have these sort of overdose and other risks. Um, and, and just the, the sheer amount of um, collateral crime that has to be committed to pay for drugs at street prices. You know, um, uh, you, you, people may, may or may not know that cocaine in Colombia can be bought pure for about a thousand US dollars a kilo. Um, by the time that's been cut and entered the, on, on the streets of Britain, it's a hundred thousand dollars. It's a hundred times more. Uh, along the way with all the dealers and everybody else that's cut in the government can buy the thousand dollar pure in fact they probably the government because of the quantity they'd be buying could probably buy five hundred dollars pure yeah. that could be supplied in the dispensaries at a dosage cost of almost zero so as opposed to users being on the streets paying 100 and 200 pounds a day for heroin or cocaine if they're a severe cocaine addict they don't need to do any of that so they don't need to go and steal a thousand pounds a week. They don't need to go and, you know, rob kids of their mobile phones and all the other kind of crazy stuff, break into houses and steal, you know, a Sky, Sky TV box or something. I mean, these are the sorts of crimes that are committed by people who are trying to find a thousand to twelve or fourteen hundred pounds a week. None of that in my system. Well, thank you so much for coming on the conversation um, and it's been brilliant to have you on and some some great answers and, and I have to say overall, um, I cannot recommend uh, Radical Solutions uh, for a System at Breaking Point, Justice on Trial. It's a brilliant book, um, so thank you for coming on. You say you cannot recommend it? I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> thanks, Doreen. Good, good to talk and um, thanks for having me on to talk about this stuff. That's okay. <laughs> Thanks.